Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Sean Solis, a partner in Milbank's alternative investments practice based in New York. Probably by the end of the year, going to be the highest volume of CLOs we've ever seen across any year in history. In fact, August was the busiest month ever. Let's get to it. Sean, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Yeah, it's great to be here, Alan. Thank you very much for hosting. So about a year ago on, on the Law, Policy, and Markets podcast, we took a look at capital markets at the toward the end of the second quarter of 2020, and there was a lot of doubt about how the economy would do. And in your area, in CLOs and derivatives, uh, structured products, there was a lot of uncertainty. And since then, what we've seen is the Federal Reserve dumping money into the markets. Uh, interest rates have stayed low. Despite the pandemic, we've seen significant stability and growth of financial assets on Wall Street. And this is a very big difference from what we saw in the 2008-2010 dislocation, especially in your area of structured products. How is the CLO market today different than it was then? Well, it's a great introduction, Alan, and it is very different. First off, there were a lot of lessons learned during the last financial crisis, the 2008 to 2010-11 era that you referenced. CLOs pre-credit crisis were structured in materially different ways than they have been since 2012, which was when the kind of the market reemerged post-financial crisis, great uh, recession, however you'd like to refer to it. And really, the product, you know, in, before the credit crisis, then was it's a much looser product in the sense that. The structural protections that both investors and rating agencies have require in today's product weren't just present, weren't present then in the same way they are now. Um, you know, like any market, this market's evolved to address, you know, issues and things that have happened in the past, you know, but it's important to note, CLOs performed extremely well through the credit crisis, notwithstanding some of these looser features. If you look at the, the default rates and, you know, across the structure, Triple A, double A notes have never lost one dollar of principal since they came into their existence in the mid mid nineties. So CLOs are designed to take advantage of kind of adverse market conditions. Nonetheless, there were CDOs and you know cousins of CLOs that are often characterized in the same manner by you know journalists and the like. And those products obviously perform very badly. Are often collateralized by residential mortgage-backed securities and and similar assets, which, as we all know were kind of the worst performing assets during the Great Recession era. CLOs, you know, which are essentially a class of structured credit products that are they're essentially backed by leverage loans, you know, business loans. And those perform very well. Obviously, Fed policies and government policies help facilitate uh, certain support for that asset class. But nonetheless, these are vehicles that are not static pools like a lot of the other structured products. These are actively traded uh, securitizations in which a manager is you know, taking advantage of market conditions, you know, reducing price, reduction in prices of loans, you know, scooping things up that are credit good, that are trading cheap. So I think CLOs are something that people don't necessarily know how, how well they perform through throughout various credit cycles at this point. So let's unpack it for a second, because a lot of people don't even know what a CLO is. We'll come back to some, I think you have pretty sophisticated insights into the market, given the size of our practice, but just for a lot of folks who don't get it. So you've got banks making loans to businesses, and those those leverage loans, you know, depending on the nature of the borrowers, have a certain degree of risk associated with them. They're not all the same, and some borrowers are riskier than others, but banks need to recycle that loan pool so that they can have more liquidity to make more loans to more borrowers. Hence, you have the secondary market. And these structured products are a way of pooling loans and then slicing them off into different risk 
layers, if you will, yep. right? Yep. And that that's going to boost liquidity overall in the market and makes our markets more efficient. That's the theory. So, but that's changed. And the role of the equity manager in particular, they have to retain some risk. Uh, has also evolved, I think. Can you say a bit more about where we are now since? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's one of the things that came out of the the Great Recession era, you know, the risk retention rules in which for certain types of securitizations, the collateral manager has been designated as a sponsor and they are required to retain, you know, certain characteristics, you know, notes, you know, that are issued by the deal. And why is that? So what's the point of the risk retention rules? Like, why is that a good idea? One of the risk retention rules, they kind of came out of the fact that, you know, there's a transfer of credit risk from one entity to another, and there may be asymmetric knowledge associated with that. So you had, and especially in the RMBS area, a lot of people who are originating RMBS loans on the idea that they were going to simply transfer these into a special purpose vehicle and sell off the risk to third parties. And obviously that turned out very bad, you know, in the, in the residential mortgage-backed security area, because these loans were originated with very loose standards, and we all we all know the story. So the risk retention rules kind of arise out of that concept that the person who's originating or acquiring the assets in the first instance, who has the most knowledge around the characteristics of the origination of the underlying borrower, should in turn retain some of the risk associated with those assets in connection with the sale of those assets through a, a special purpose vehicle or otherwise to third parties. So that's that's really the genesis of what the risk retention rules are. Now, as as they apply to CLOs, you know. It's been a little bit of an evolution where, you know, first off, the risk retention rules have kind of applied to every type of CLO. That was the case when the rule was kind of finalized, the 2015-16 era. Thereafter, you know, given that CLOs are unique in the sense that CLO managers, at least in the broadly syndicated CLO space, aren't, you know, originating loans in the way that you would think about in the normal sense of going in and negotiating with underlying borrowers. As you mentioned, Alan, it's usually a large, you know, syndicated bank who's going to lead a negotiation with the underlying borrower and then sell off the risk to various other lenders, which are mostly CLOs at this point. I think CLOs are close to 80% of the marginal buyer in new, you know, uh, originated, broadly syndicated loan facilities. So CLOs, though, themselves aren't negotiating with underlying borrowers. In fact, the tax rules prevent them from doing so because we don't want to be engaged in a trade of business for various offshore investor reasons, which we can get into if we need to. But so it was always a weird fit to have risk retention apply to broadly syndicated CLOs. In fact, there was litigation around this very issue in 2018. It came to a head in the in the DC Circuit Court where the LSTA, which is a trade organization, it brought suit against the, the Fed and the various other regulators saying, you know, the way that you've applied the risk retention rules to broadly syndicated CLOs don't comport the actual Dodd-Frank statute. And the LSTA won. The, the Circuit Court ruled that, you know, as the way that open market broadly syndicated CLOs work, there isn't a risk retention requirement because there isn't this kind of origination aspect to it. You know, CLOs are just, you know, essentially advising special purpose vehicles to go out in their own name and acquire loans. So it ended up being, and it is now, the fact that the risk retention rules do not really apply to the broadly syndicated loan universe. Now, there are kind of more middle market loans, which um, involve managers and, you know, borrowers and obligors where there is kind of direct origination. Those CLOs still have risk retention components to it. There also are risk retention rules in Europe. To the extent that you're selling to European investors, you'll need to comply with risk retention. But the risk retention kind of archetype and overlay has been an interesting evolution where it's no longer applicable to most of the market, which is the broadly syndicated market. So the current market, as I mentioned, has changed a lot since last year. And in fact, we've now, I guess, globally passed the $1 trillion mark in CLOs. And a lot of those are new issuances, but more of them are refinancings and, and resets. I mean, you've been busy <laughs> for the last year. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd say, yeah, we have certainly been very busy. And I think 
you know, the COVID era has been very interesting. I think last year, as you mentioned, going into the dark days of March and April of 2020, there were a lot of consternation and concern across you know, structured credit, credit generally, but especially structured credit because the cracks were starting to show around, you know, the performance of the underlying loans. Ultimately, you know, any product is a function of the performance of the assets to collateralize, you know, its its notes. And certainly, as we saw, you know, there was a lot of lot of concern around certain industries, retail, travel, things like that, things that we know have been adversely affected by the COVID pandemic. Um, so, you know, but an interesting thing happened beyond the government support that you referenced, which I think the, the regulators and, and the government learned a lot of lessons from the Great Recession about what worked and what didn't. Um, that helped. But I think more than anything, these vehicles, which once again, are designed to take advantage of dislocation of volatility, really kind of outperformed in a way that I think has surprised a lot of people who aren't in the market. And if you look at kind of from May to December, performance of CLOs, it's been through the roof. And performance, I'm referencing the return to the equity tranche, the equity tranche being the first loss tranche in the structure. That one, it it bears the, the losses first, it bears the most risk, but it also has the highest upside in the sense that, you know, any upside that the manager is able to earn accrues directly to the equity. Um, so their returns are theoretically, you know, unlimited. Um, their downside is obviously limited to the amount of equity they have in the deal. But the returns to the equity during that era and, into, and even into this year have been incredible. And what it's done is, is, you know, catalyzed a lot of investment from third-party equity investors into this market. And that's really the kind of the engine of this market, that you're getting someone who's willing to take that risk the debt investors are there. And like I said, the debt, debt has always performed very well throughout kind of the CLO history, but it's the equity that has obviously been the question mark and frankly, the most difficult part of the structure to sell. And what we've seen is a huge amount of inflows from even investors who had never been in this market before who want access to the CLO equity by virtue of the performance of CLOs in a very uh, kind of uh, you know interesting time last year. And I think that's kind of solidified in a lot of people's eyes across the finance markets, you know, this kind of the, the, the performance of this product and, and how it's here to stay. So there's been a huge amount of inflows of equity, which has catalyzed a lot more of new issuance deals and resets and refis and the like, and um, has really kind of moved this product, in, in our view anyway, into the next stratosphere of, you know, it's really got more widespread, expense, uh, wide, widespread acceptance across across investors uh, in, the, in the universe of finance. I'm going to identify two things that I think could be driving that and ask you your view on which one is more important. So on the one hand, we've got a low interest rate environment. So when you've got the spreads becoming more compressed, you've got low yields to begin with, there's this desire for people to chase yield. Uh, institutional investors are no different than anyone else. In fact, to the contrary, they probably need for their longer term financial management to make sure they can have a certain amount of return. So you could imagine why this risk on mentality might exist for people trying to still produce a good return on their capital in a market where it's challenging to do so because of the the, the low rates and the surplus liquidity. The other might be that markets don't price risk, they price expectations or perceptions of risk. And when we've seen the underlying corporate credits do better than expected, when earnings are better than we expected, and interest coverage is actually still today better than it was in 2007 before the last crisis, there's good reasons to think the defaults in these pools will in fact be low. And those low default expectations may also be driving it. Which one do you think is a bigger one? Is it is it a better, is it risk assessment, which is sophisticated based on recent history, or is it yield chasing? 
I think it's risk assessment at the end of the day, because once again, I think, you know, equity investors are focused on risk assessment in the sense of what are the default rate going to be given, you know, where the first ones, the equity investors, are the first ones to bear that, bear that risk. I think it's important to note, though, that CLOs, by and large, are a floating rate product. So in an environment which, you know, has really low rates like we do today, where really the expectation is, who knows the timing, but the expectation is that rates are going to go up. CLOs do very well in that environment because, you know, in- investors are focused on being in floating rate product in a rising rate environment. So I think that's, you know, that that is part of it, you know, the rate environment and the chasing of yield and wanting to get exposure to the floating rate products. But I think more than anything, you know, like I said, the equity, the equity tranche is the kind of the engine of this, of this market. And to the extent that you have a widespread and diverse investor base in that, in that market who are, you know, willing to stand behind managers and, you know, put their money in the first loss tranche. Um, they're the ones who are kind of catalyzing new issuance. And their fundamental focus, obviously, is on defaults and what the environment is. Obviously, secondary, they're focused on the ARB, which is the, you know, the rate on the loans, what the spread is in the loans versus the cost of the debt and all those things that go into, you know, assessing an equity investment. But fundamentally, their risk is around defaults and the way the default works in CLOs and, you know, they kind of get haircut in the structure, haircut being that, you know, anytime there's a default in the loan, you get less credit for it in your, your over collateralization tests, which affects the return to the equity. And, you know, there's over collateralization triggers, which can cut off distributions to the equity. All these things is, you know, a huge focus for equity investors. So defaults at the end of the day and the environment and their assessment of the possibility of defaults is really driving, I think, this market more than anything. And do you think that that's the right assessment? I mean, if you were an investor today, would you make that? I do. I do. You know, having, having, you know, we work with a lot of equity investors and obviously a lot of managers who have their own equity or putting behind this deal, behind these deals. I've seen, you know, I've seen the, the research, I've seen the analysis. And certainly from my, from my standpoint, I think it's the right way to look at it. Whether how long that lasts is always a question and, you know, the viability of it in, in face of the government policies. And if they change, what does that mean? But fundamentally, you know, and these are mostly U.S. U.S. obligors, borrowers in the U.S. There is a strong bet on the on the kind of the U.S. economy and you know the performance of the companies within. Yeah, it. and it's interesting. And even if you see the Fed start to taper the economy, that will actually be a vote of confidence in some way in the economy, which means the corporate earnings should be stronger, and therefore default exactly. rates exactly remain low. And like I said, that in a rising rate, thing that you know it's a lodestone for investors to CLOs, those who aren't in it. Once rates start going up, they get more exposure in it. I mean, an important part of this market in the leverage loan market, um, the retail, there's a lot of ETFs and other retail funds that invest in leverage loans, which is a dynamic which affects CLOs because, you know, CLOs may be 75, 80% marginal buyer of leverage loans, but, you know, the leverage loan prices are sometimes driven by inflows and outflows of retail funds, which go to the very point that you just made around people's assessment and views of, of leverage loans in light of, of Fed policies and the like. So, there's all these kind of intermarket dynamics which affect leverage loans, which ultimately affects the low issuance. And it, you know, it's very interesting to see how they all kind of all piece together. Yeah, that's, that's an, an interesting fact because you know historically you didn't see a lot of retail investors directly investing in ETFs or or mutual funds that were exposed to this space. Uh, you know, in classic equity funds, we're actually seeing retail investors in not just the United States but in many markets, uh, Latin America, Europe, where retail investors are playing a bigger role than they used to. Uh, alongside institutional money, maybe in, even in times competing <laughs> with it uh, when they can in math. But these are complicated products, 
And as you mentioned before, there's asymmetric information. And yes, if managers have some skin in the game, but maybe they don't <laughs> now for CLOs, you know, that could that can mitigate that to some extent. And obviously having good advisors, uh, rating agencies, lawyers like you, auditors looking at financial statements, that all helps. But is this a sector where retail investors really know what they're buying under the hood of those ETFs? Yeah. I mean, first off, I think it's important to note that most retail exposure to this area isn't the direct loan space. They're not necessarily invested into CLO notes themselves. Those are mostly institutional investors. You know, there's quib requirements and the like. So for the most part, retail investors in the usual sense can't access CLO investments directly. They can ask us leverage loans. There are some funds out there that are retail funds that do have exposure, at least in part, to CLO equity. And you'll see, you know, kind of these kind of these closed end funds that are are publicly listed, these 40 act funds. There's quite a bit of disclosure around it, and it's not the primary and only strategy within it. So I think, you know, our market is still very institutional focused and doesn't have a lot of retail exposure, you know, and and to the point you made around asymmetric information. I think the asymmetric information, you know, was really an issue there pre-credit crisis in the way that, you know, some loans were being originated, like in the mortgage space, especially in this space, you know. All the investors have complete access to the pool of loans that are, you know, being purchased by the manager on, on behalf of the vehicle. And, you know, the information availability is, is, is really, there's a lot of transparency. You can go on and these loans are quoted, you know, they trade like stocks, the people that are in this. And, you know, I think anyone who's invested in CLOs is well aware of what, of what the loans collateralizing them are. Obviously, it's a complicated structure. I think it's one of the most complex products when you kind of dig into the hood of, how a CLO structure works, but ultimately, if you're focused on, you know, the performance of the loans, going to, you know, inform the performance of the notes. Everyone has access to the information of of what loans are in there, you know, and there's concentration limits around, you know, you can't have exposure to too many industries or you know one industry, you know, too much. There's domicile restrictions. There's all kinds of rating agency requirements, which have, you know, as I mentioned, strengthened since the financial crisis and really given investors a, a lot of confidence around. These products are, are designed to perform in a way that it takes quite a bit uh, for, for losses to occur. That's good. I think, think there's a good improvement. One other question that comes to mind, of course, is when you think about it, company borrows from bank, bank syndicates to other banks or other participants. Those are then pooled with other loans and carved up into strips. We're talking about spreading risk. And at each layer, we're, we're dispersing it. And if you think about it, what surprised a lot of people in 2008, 2009 is how many of those risks then came back to get into insurance companies' hands through credit default swaps uh, in, in particular. And that created systemic risk uh, for something we thought was really dispersed, which really, it, it turned out it wasn't. How is it different? How is it different now? Yeah. I mean, we've seen that kind of monoline insurance route that really exists in the world of CDOs and RMBS and the like. That's kind of completely gone. We don't, we don't see insurance in the way that you typically would see it back then anymore. For instance, CLOs, there's no guarantees. There's no insurance, you know, by insurance companies, you know, sitting behind these behind these notes. Now, maybe insurance companies are big investors in CLOs. Certainly, they're buying risk directly. Uh, but it, that's not the same way of of kind of the after effects of of the malperformance of the 2008-9 era spreading to you know the AIGs of the world, for instance, who you know had to deal all of a sudden with a lot of risk that maybe wasn't as well known to their regulators. Yeah, there's more transparency certainly in the, if you're a direct investor. Way more transparency, and there's way more diversity. It's going to before, you know, the 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 investors are global, and this there's a lot of investors in Japan, all over the, all over Europe, in the U.S. You know, I wouldn't say there's kind of 
singleized risk in particular areas that, you know, if, if this product does malperform, that there's all of a sudden going to be a complete breakdown in a certain area of the economy. Uh, that's that's part of what's happened in the CLO market is the diversity of investors that have entered into it um, have, have kind of proven that there's just not one area that uh, one area of investor that's kind of invested in this product. Yeah, so it's a more robust market for sure. I want to circle back to something you mentioned a minute ago, and there's this idea that because these are floating rate products, as rates were to rise, the assuming companies, of course, have the you know earnings through the the EBITDA for interest coverage, the interest payments will increase and payments come out, and there is you know volatility in the equity cash flows quarter to quarter. One of the pieces I want to ask you about, though, is this kind of this basis risk because you have this mismatch where a lot of these loans are priced on say one month LIBOR. And the London Interbank offered rate is about to be replaced, and the CLOs are on three-month LIBOR, right? So obviously, these refinancings give you a chance to fix a lot of that in the documentation, but it's still not entirely clear what the replacement rates will be. And does that basis rate? Yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of question marks around. That's a great, it's a great question. We're in, we're on the cusp of a transition from LIBOR. I mean, across markets, as everybody knows. I mean, obviously, there's trillions of dollars of derivatives that are based on LIBOR, which have the same issues. But you know, you're exactly right, Alan. You know, historically, there has been a basis mismatch. Most of the collateral, the loans, are priced off of one-month LIBOR, and almost all of the debt securities issued in the CLO are three-month LIBOR. So the equities always had to bear that risk. Now, in some cases, the equities been the beneficiaries of LIBOR floors and the underlying loans and the like. So there's been offsets to it, but. It has been always a bugaboo of equity investors that there is this basis risk, this idea that if there's a spread widening between one month and three month LIBOR, that's essentially directly out of the pocket of the equity investor. And, you know, it's it's always annoyed them that that's the case. Um, but nonetheless, it is. And I think it will largely continue to be. Now, there's been in recent weeks an emergence of term SOFR as probably the very likely successor to uh, three month LIBOR and frankly, one month LIBOR. On, on CLOs and loans, respectively. And term SOFR has kind of emerged in a way that, you know, the ARC, which is this committee that's been formed to kind of help the transition of you know, away from LIBOR. And, you know, all the banks in the country are going to be on a mandate that starting January 1st, 2022, they can no longer lend in LIBOR and everything's going to be in term SOFR. So that means for CLO warehouses and CLOs starting next year, we're going to see term SOFR take over. Now, the interesting thing about term SOFR is that you know it's about five basis points. Right now, three-month LIBOR is about 12 basis points. However, the ARC committee has announced an adjustment, which is a fixed adjustment. They're not going to announce another one. Let's put the adjustment to term SOFR to kind of, kind of compare it to three-month LIBOR at 26 basis points. So right now, as we stand today, term SOFR with the adjustment is going to be about 31 basis points, where three-month LIBOR is about 12. Obviously, that is very negative for any CL equity investor looking at that. Now, Part of this is that this calculation was done, you know, based on historical curves. So as rates rise, that basis or differential between the spread adjustment and where three-month LIBOR is should also, you know, kind of minimize. But right now, there's a lot of consternation in the market around how is this all going to work? How are we going to transition it? You know, some of the, the existing deals that have LIBOR transition language, they're not going to be triggered from moving to LIBOR to term sulfur probably until later next year, early 23. You know, one month and three months LIBOR can continue to be reported till June 23. So there's you know very highly negotiated triggers around when you you know transition existing deals. But these newer deals where you know investors, debt investors are going to require term SOFR, even in CLO warehouses, which are arranged by banks, which are going to require lending in term SOFR, 
this negotiation around the spread adjustment and how much people are going to be pegging it to where three-month LIBOR is going to be very interesting. I don't think any seal equity investor is just going to accept this 26 basis point spread. So they're, they're kind of the, the analysis has already started and people are starting to strategize what their positions are going to be and how that's how that's all going to work going forward. Yeah, I mean, conceptually, it's sort of an interesting thing. They're trying to fit up, I guess you'd say, a square peg into a round hole because your term sofer, as you mentioned, the secured overnight financing rate from the New York Fed is a secured rate. It's it's as if a rate of loans are secured by treasuries, whereas Lond- uh, the London interbank offered rate, LIBOR, was is not secured and it's always been set by the market and therefore subject to manipulation, hence the you know the the change. And that's why ARC is suggesting these things. But you know, we see in whether it's Levfin, ACFIN, project finance, you know, not just a leverage loan market, there are wide areas of the market where LIBOR has traditionally been the reference for variable rate loans. And I'm not sure personally, I really see how a fixed calculation or a fixed difference for terms over makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard for banks too. They don't know their cost of funding. It's going to be very interesting how that, how that plays out. I mean, there's been a lot of predictability and acceptance obvious with LIBOR, um, but it's going away for the reasons everybody's aware of. But this isn't just on the borrower side or the equity investor side. Banks have signaled a lot of issues about how they're going to do their internal hedging, their internal cost of capital, this negotiation on every deal around you know what the spread adjustment is going to be on term SOFR. I mean, we have a margin concept in CLOs, for instance, which is three-month LIBOR plus a margin. Is this going to be a, a situation where we have term SOFR plus the adjustment plus the margin? Is this adjustment going to be kind of inculcated within the margin? For banks, they have concerns as well for their internal reasons from what I've heard, even though on our side of the fence, we're very focused on the buy side and working with managers and equity investors. I think the whole market is going to have to kind of acclimate to this this new environment. And there's at least a view from lenders, which I think is somewhat biased, that over time, this kind of spread adjustment in terms of movement is actually going to be borrower friendly. Of course, borrowers and equity investors have the same view opposing that. But you know, I think it's a great unknown. I, I can tell you I'm very confident that this transition will happen seamlessly. I'm not expecting widespread issues with it. There's been a ton of thought and I, you know, certainly negotiation around these provisions, but the economics of it are going to be very interesting how it plays out over time for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. And the uncertainty, I guess, could create. It could, it, it could, it could create it. But at the end of the day, if term sofer is the base rate, negotiating around what the adjustments are and whatever the market environment is, I'm confident, you know, that, that market actors can get there on that. Um, but nonetheless, I do think there's just going to be at the beginning of, of 22, there's going to be this period of time where this needs to be worked through. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. So uh, you and our, our colleagues in our alternative investments group have a pretty big market share uh, here, happily, I know. And congratulations on your number one rating now for three or four years in a row uh, for Managers Council. Uh, where do you see the market going in 2022? It'll, I assume it'll cool off from where we are now. There's technical reasons why that is the case as well. If you think about it, you know, first off, the spreads in this market have tightened significantly relative to say even 2019. And the way these deals work out, and there's usually two-year non-call deals. Two, once two years go by, you're allowed to re- reprice the debt in the deal. So what we've seen this year is you know, relatively widespread in 2019 vintage. And you know, every one of those deals has been subject to refinancing or reset this year. You also saw a dynamic introduced in the market in 2020, once the COVID era, at least as relative to CLOs, kind of opened up and you know, issuance started to begin again in June of 20, a lot of those deals were done on one-year non-call deals on the idea that spreads were pretty wide. Equity investors and managers were willing to take the bet that they would eventually tighten. So do a deal that has a shorter non-call so you can refi it earlier. 
So all those deals this year have also been subject to refire reset. So you had this kind of convergence of the 2019 issuance and 2020 issuance on all a lot of the one-year non-calls, which one-year non-calls are fairly uncommon, except for 2020, all kind of coagulate into the 2021 calendar year. That's why we've seen such an increased amount of issuance, refis, resets, and plus the new issue market has been very good because the leveraged loan market has been, been issuing new paper. So that obviously catalyzes new new issuance of CLO. So all that's come together to be, it's probably by the end of the year going to be the, the most, the highest volume of CLOs we've ever seen um, across any year in history. In fact, August was the busiest month ever for new issue deals. And think about August, August traditionally is a month that is not as busy. People are on vacation and the like, but August was incredibly busy. Um, so all these things are coming together to say 2021 is a banner year. But it also means, and to answer your question, 2022 is these are there's not as many deals subject to refire reset. There's going to be significantly less. There'll be, I think, plenty of new issue. Um, but this term so for transition issue is out there. You know what the Fed is doing with rates, whether they taper or not, it could be good, good for CLOs. Maybe they don't. Maybe that is kind of you know in, you know negative. So there's a lot of open questions. But I know one thing. There won't be the amount of refi and reset volume in 2022 that we have this year. So maybe next year in August, you'll have sand in your shoes instead of ink on your, on your hands from printing, from printing all the new issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I think that's been the theme in this market is from the get-go coming out of you know, June of 20 until now, it's been, you know, incredibly busy every, pretty much every week of every month since, the, since that date. Well, Sean, I know you're busy. Thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. My pleasure, Alan. Thanks so much for hosting me. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Milbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at milbank.com. Milbank.com.